You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Naim, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, let's uh, pray. God, you have not kept us in the dark. You have not remained silent. But you have revealed yourself in many different ways, most fully and most gloriously in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, as we encounter him in your word, we encounter you as you really are, in all your justice, in all your mercy, in all your love and compassion for those you have made. So we pray now that you prepare our hearts to meet Jesus today, that we might know you better and we might be forever changed. And we do pray this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, great to be with you today. My name's Andy. I attend Sydney on a Hill, Melbourne, here with my wife, Steph, and our kids. It's my great privilege to be opening the word with you from the Bible. I'm someone who spends a lot of time reading children's books. I have two children, that's why. And I was thinking a little bit about this week, the story of the Little Mermaid. Now, I thought I knew the story of the Little Mermaid, but turns out I don't. Maybe you know the story or you think you do. Because before Ariel and the Disney film of 1989, The Little Mermaid, there was actually the book, The Little Mermaid, a children's story written by Hans Christian Andersen, the famed uh, author, published in 1837. How's this for a story? If you know the movie, you might want to guess where the changes or see if you can spot where the differences are. So the original uh, book tells the story of a little mermaid, so far so good, who lives with her father, the king of an underwater kingdom. Swimming to the surface one day, she catches a glimpse of this glorious world above and she sees this human man who captures her heart. She longs to be part of his world and the world of human beings and he falls in love with this handsome uh, prince, this human prince, but from a distance. Anyway, sometimes later, 
uh, sometime later when a storm strikes and the handsome prince, uh, his ship is, is shipwrecked and he's in trouble, the little mermaid comes to his rescue and saves him from drowning. Unfortunately, though, he is unconscious and has no idea that it's her who has saved him. So the little mermaid, not to be deterred, makes a deal with the sea witch who grants her two things, the legs that she'll need to walk and a voice. But there's a catch. If she wins the love of her handsome prince, she will remain a human forever. But if he marries someone else, well then, the little mermaid will die and she'll be brokenhearted forever and she'll dissolve into sea foam and never be seen again as she floats away on the waves. Anyway, to cut a long and quite sad story short, the little mermaid finds the prince. He likes the look of her, but he's engaged to somebody else and he marries that someone else. And so the little mermaid dissolves into bubbles on the surf and foam and she's gone. Her spirit roams the earth for the next 300 years, trying to do good deeds for humans, but that's the end of the love story. The end. Uh, it's probably fair to say that the, the author of this children's story, Hans Christian Andersen, he wrote this sad story from some personal experience. Uh, in his personal life, uh, Anderson had a habit of falling into unrequited love. Uh, he never married his princess or more likely his prince. He fell out of bed one day and suffered uh, injuries from which he never recovered. And then a few years later, he died of cancer. Hans Christian Anderson knew one or two things about sad endings. They were really the story of his life. But the movie, the Disney movie, it's different, isn't it? It has a happy ending. The Little Mermaid and the Prince defeat the forces of evil. They get married and they start their new life together, happily ever after. You can understand why the writers of the film, the 1989 film, changed the ending of Anderson's story. They just didn't think that kids could cope with that kind of existential despair before bedtime. Now, today's story from Luke 7 is not a fairy tale. It's a true story. It's not a romance, but it is, I guess, a story about love. It's a story about a woman who had an experience or firsthand of, of some of the, the worst things that this sad world can throw at a person. And yet, she meets a man who has the power and the compassion to rewrite the end of her story, but for real. Let's get some context as we open the scriptures. Great to have our Bibles out with us. We're in Luke chapter 7 today. We're in the Gospel of Luke for this series called Encounters with Jesus. And that's what's happening. People are encountering Jesus and their lives are being changed forever. Uh, he began his ministry in Nazareth uh, by reading this scroll from the book of Isaiah. It's in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus goes off script and he announces boldly, announces boldly that all this prophecy he's just read from Isaiah has been fulfilled and it's been fulfilled in him, in Jesus. In the hearing of all who are around listening to him read. You see, Isaiah saw a time in the future when God's kingdom would 
sort of break into reality, right? Break into this world, putting things back the right way up, undoing the damage that we humans have done to ourselves and each other and the world. And then Jesus says, based on that prophecy from Isaiah, I'm here. I'm what you've been waiting for. It's a big claim. And his hearers are, well, outraged. They uh, actually try to throw him off a cliff to um, teach him a lesson. But Jesus keeps going. He doesn't fall off the cliff. And he keeps preaching the good news that God's kingdom, God's reign on earth is finally here. The time when God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven is now, says Jesus. It's coming. But he doesn't just say that God's reign is here. He shows it. He doesn't just tell, he shows. He demonstrates this. He drives out a tormenting spirit, releasing someone from captivity to that evil. He heals Simon's mother-in-law. Last week, we saw him reach out and heal a man with leprosy, changing that life's man forever. As people encounter Jesus, they encounter the kingdom and their story is changed. We even learn that he has the authority of God to forgive people from sin to forgive people from the power and consequences of their own sin. Now, you can understand, with someone like this around, uh, crowds just flock to Jesus. They want something of what he's got. They want to hear him speak. And obviously, they want to bring their loved ones to Jesus so they can be healed. Let's pick up the story in verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Just to to reinforce, this is a real place. These are real events in time and space in history. Nain was a, a city south of Capernaum, and it's on the way for Jesus to Jerusalem, near Jesus's hometown of Nazareth. Now, it's it's not a big city. And by chance, or more accurately, by divine appointment, just as Jesus is walking past into the city gates, out comes a, well, a funeral procession. A funeral procession is coming out of the city. In that culture, you would bury your dead the same day that they died, straight away. And you'd bring the body out on a kind of stretcher, and you'd carry the the body out and mourn your loved one to lay them to rest outside the city walls. So Jesus comes upon this this sad scene, made particularly sad because of who the body is. Now, we're not told all the details, but there's been some tragic end to this young man's life. But the tragedy doesn't end with him. The tragedy continues in the life of who he leaves behind because his mother is a widow and he is an only son. So here she is. She's already lost her husband and we don't know how many other children she had. All she has is this one boy, this this child, and now he's gone. It's her only son. Now, the the loss of any child is a grief that then and now is considered an unimaginably heavy grief. But now she's also totally alone. It strikes me reading through uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Bible how often widows, widows are mentioned. God seems to have a particular focus with widows. Why? Well, because like orphans and 
vulnerable refugees, widows in those days were the most vulnerable. Right? I wonder if you can think of someone you know that is totally alone, that has no friends, no family. Now, it's, it's hard enough to face that kind of isolation uh, today, but in ancient times, women had really no ability or very limited ability to support themselves financially or to protect themselves against bad people. No superannuation, no life insurance, no property to fall back on, no work, no savings. A lot of people would have felt pity for her, seeing that scene of her burying the final member of her family, her son. But there's little that they could have done to change her situation, to change the fact that for this woman, life has been a sad story full of tragic endings. But then she encounters somebody who has the power and the compassion to change that ending. I want to notice two things from the passage about Jesus, two things we learn about Jesus in this encounter. And the first thing is, do you notice Jesus' heart? Do you get a feel for who he is? Verse 13, when the Lord, that is Jesus, saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, as far as we know, Jesus didn't know who she was, had never met her, didn't know the dead man, and yet he stops on his very important mission. Literally, he's on a mission to save the world. He stops and pauses to comfort this woman. She didn't ask him for anything. She didn't pester him. She didn't even say anything to him that we know of. Maybe she doesn't even know who Jesus is and why all these people are following him. She probably doesn't care at this point. But she doesn't need to ask, does she? Because Jesus sees her and that is enough. I don't know, maybe you feel at the moment... Like God is just too busy to care about you or you and your suffering. That He's too big, too, too, too occupied with other things, more important things perhaps. Maybe you feel like you're too small for him to care. Can I say that when we meet Jesus, we realize that's rubbish. God has compassion on you, just as God had compassion on this woman. That's the real God we meet in Jesus, the God of compassion. And friends... I've been thinking about this. If we follow Jesus, we need to be like Jesus. We need to be people of compassion. The Apostle James puts it very clearly. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Guy Mason asked me just before um, preaching this, uh, a good question, but one that threw me a little bit. He said, Andy, how does this passage affect you, Andy? And I hadn't really thought about it. But I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think daily there are opportunities, living in a pandemic particularly, to make a choice. Will I be selfish? Will I look out for my own rights? Or will I have compassion on other people? I, I think, I mean, literally about the lady on our street who, who's a widow, who lives on her, her own. She's got one daughter, but she lives in a, a different local government zone and she can't come and visit and drop food off. 
This passage challenges me to think, how can I have compassion on her without breaking any public health directions? How can I have compassion on that person who's in my immediate street? This pandemic has made, they think, over a million orphans, but it's also left a whole lot of people lonely and isolated. This uh, passage also challenges me to think in my own decisions. You know, will I get vaccinated even if I'm hesitant, even if I'm not sure what the benefit is to me for the sake of vulnerable others and our health workers? Will I have compassion and make decisions thinking of other people, not me? Will I have compassion even on people I meet, people I see online or in person at the park who are being idiots? whose behaviour and words make me angry, will I stop and think, well, they are behaving badly, but I'm sure they're also doing it tough. Maybe I can pray for them and maybe I can pause and not fire up at them straight away. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There are daily opportunities for me. I don't know about you. So why don't you join me in praying that God would make those opportunities visible to you today? Back to Jesus, though, because what he does next is extraordinary. Verse 13, he said to her, do not weep. Now, do not weep. That is an interesting statement to make at this point, at this widow's only son's funeral. Do not weep. Now, just to be clear, if you or I said that to a grieving widow at this point, it would be insensitive, bordering on the cruel. But it's all about who's talking, isn't it? It's all about who these words are coming from. You see, in the mouth of Jesus, these words, do not weep, have power and promise. And they change things. You see, it's one thing for me to have compassion and pity for somebody. I can feel sorry for a widow all day who has lost their only son, but that won't bring that person back from the dead. As a, a pastor ministering to, to people in grief, I've often been left speechless, right? Not knowing what to do or say be, be, because, well, I slowly realized there is nothing I can do or say. But Jesus is not me and I'm not Jesus. Because when Jesus says, do not weep, these words have power. And that's the second thing we need to notice about Jesus in this story. Not only is he compassionate, but he is scary powerful. We saw last week in the story of the the, the man with an incurable skin disease that Jesus is able to heal any illness, but nobody yet knows how far it goes. How powerful is Jesus? Does Jesus have authority even over life and death? Well, let's see, verse 14. Then he came up and touched the buyer, touched the... The, uh, the, the plank they bring the body out on. And the bearers stood still. What's this guy doing? And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. Again, words that if you or I said them would be ridiculous. I've had professional and personal experience of many funerals. And I can say that this is not something that you say at a funeral. It's not something that you see every day at a funeral. But you know what? It's... It's not just that Jesus says these words, it's also what he does. He touches this body. And for us, that might not be very significant. 
But in the culture and, and the religion Jesus is a part of, that's a big no-no. You do not touch a dead body. See, the, the old system of, of, of religion was set up to remind you that death is the enemy. Death is the enemy. And death is everywhere in this world. Touching anything remotely connected to death would make you temporarily religiously unclean. So they had washing and they had ISO protocols and they had personal protective equipment and all the kind of things that you need to stop people being infected by, not a virus, but by sin. All this ancient infection control was was designed to protect people from the spiritual pandemic, if you like, of of sin and of evil and of, of death and of corruption. But Jesus, here's the thing, he doesn't need protecting from sin and evil and death. Sin and evil and death need protecting from Jesus. Back in chapter 4 of Luke, what happened when Jesus met the demon? The demon ran away scared. Last week when Jesus touched the man afflicted with a skin disease, did he get infected? No, the leprosy got Jesus. And when Jesus touched a corpse, death didn't rub off on Jesus, but life, life came to the dead man. Because Jesus is the source of life. And so when he says, young man, get up, things change forever. He's cancelling death in the middle of the funeral. And the dead man sat up, verse 15, and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, we often think, this is incredible. And we often think that people in the olden days were a little bit gullible when it came to this sort of thing. Whereas we... We know that dead bodies, scientifically speaking, stay dead because of science and stuff. Now, can I assure you that people in the ancient world knew a lot more about death than most of us. They knew what a dead body was, and they knew that it was final. This wasn't something that they expected to happen every day. In fact, that's why it becomes instant overnight news. You see, verse 17, this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countryside, because it was unexpected. It was undeniable, and it was life-changing. In fact, these reports have made it all the way through history to you, to me here in Melbourne. Now, if this is true, and I think it is, if this is true, if this is real, then Jesus is not just a a self-help guru with a best-selling book. Jesus has the power over life and death. Do you understand what that means for you? Think about that. I've been challenged this week to just reflect each day on this reality that the one I serve and the one I follow and the one who loves me has the power over death and life itself. And if that's true, and it is, then I can be fearless, can't I? Fearless to give the rest of my days to serving Him and serving others. Fearless when it comes to missing out, right? If I don't get to travel ever in this life, if I don't get to achieve my goals in this life, who cares? Fearless as I realize how quickly I will get old and sick and die. Fearless as I grieve the loss of those people I really love, knowing that 
They are in Christ and they are safe with him. Life is short and is full of many griefs. But Jesus is real and he has the power to change the ending of your story. Can I say I really love that we have many people joining us each week who are exploring Jesus and haven't made their mind up about him. Uh, maybe you describe yourself as uh, open-minded or maybe even a, a skeptic, maybe, well, either way. You might be thinking, surely if someone did miracles like this, then, well, people would have heard about it. People would have noticed. Maybe there'd even be records of it from the time. When I was uh, working out if Jesus was real, I was struck by the fact that even the people who hated Jesus accidentally conceded that he had done stuff like this. Right? He'd done things that were hard to explain. I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, we don't have a huge amount of records about anything from the ancient world. We just have what has been handed down to us. But take Josephus. He's a, he's a Jewish historian who ended up changing sides and working for the Romans. Long story. He did not, let's be clear, he did not think that Jesus was the Christ. But he did describe in his history how Jesus had wrought surprising feats. Right? Jewish tradition like that and, and that recorded in the Talmud described Jesus as someone who practiced magic and sorcery. Why? Well, because that echoes the, the line that Jesus' opponents at the time used against him. Yeah, yeah, we know he's doing this stuff, Luke chapter 11, verse 15, but he's doing it using demons and bad stuff. You see how they're accidentally admitting that he is doing this stuff? Because they can't explain it. In other words, his enemies don't deny that he has this power. They just think that he's working on the side of evil, not God. But the people who saw this, they knew that this is not evil, right? They knew Jesus is on the side of God. He's on the side of good. They knew this because actually some of these acts of raising the dead, they reminded them of another great prophet. Do you notice that they, they said a great prophet has arisen among us today in verse 16? They're thinking of the story of Elijah, an Old Testament prophet, who did a very similar work with the power of God, raising a, a widow's son from death. They see that and they know that this is what God is like. God has visited his people. John the Baptist, another prophet, he was a great prophet just before Jesus. And he announced the coming of God's Messiah. He heard about this. He heard the, the reports that Jesus had raised this person from the dead. And he sent some messengers to Jesus and his followers saying, what's going on, guys? What's going on? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? And it's really interesting what Jesus replies. He says, well, look at the signs. Go back and tell John, verse 22, what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. In other words, the kingdom of God is here. What God had promised back in Isaiah is here now. The story is changing, and it's a happy ending. God's people had been waiting for somebody and something new. They'd been promised that God was going to intervene in history and turn everything around, and here it is right in front of them. Not the full ending, but a foretaste, as if the kingdom of God and all the restoration of everything is sort of breaking in a bit of a tasting platter or a preview. 
In Jesus Christ, God is writing a new ending to world history, one in which evil and sin and death and corruption do not have the last word. One of my favourite books growing up was um, The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. When I think about this, the kingdom of God breaking in and what Jesus is doing here, I think of how Tolkien describes the ending, the defeat of evil and the restoration of Middle-earth. I think of when um, Samwise Ganges destroys the ring, do you know this bit if you know the story, at Mount Doom. Finally, evil is defeated. And Sam wakes up and he asks the wizard Gandalf, what happens now? Sam lay back and, and stared with open mouth and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And here's what he says. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf replies, a great shadow has departed. And then the wizard laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, the thought came to him that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all joys that he'd ever known. And then he himself burst into tears and a sweet rain passed down like a wind of spring and the sun will shine out of the clearer. His tears ceased and his laughter welled up and laughing he sprang from bed. See in the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf and the gang defeat death and all the sad things come untrue. And in the same way, Jesus defeating death invites us into a new ending, a radically new ending, one in which life and restoration and beauty have the final say. You might have wondered, looking around this world, why a loving God would allow this world to have so much sadness. The truth is it was never meant to be that way. Things are not how they're meant to be. But God did not give up on us. And here is a preview in Jesus about what he is doing, what he's begun. Friends, maybe your life has already been full of heartbreak, full of loneliness. Many of us have lost loved ones in recent times. And some of us have suffered unspeakable tragedies. Let me level with you. Jesus never promises that your life will be free from pain. Jesus never promises you that your story will be without heartbreak along the way. But friends, he does love you. He has compassion on you in a deep and personal way. And he also has the power to give your life a new ending. One in which loss and loneliness will not have the final word, where death and destruction is not the final scene. And Jesus is inviting you. He's inviting you personally now into that story. But you need to decide whether you want it. Jesus is inviting you now to take part in a new ending. To be there on the day when all the sad things become untrue. And today is the day he's asking you, will you accept his compassion? Will you acknowledge his power? 
I'd invite you, if so, to click raise my hand right now. And maybe you'd like to pray with me. Lord, we are poor and powerless. We are lost and lonely in a world too full of tears, a world corrupted by sin. But Lord, you are compassionate self. You are powerful. You do not leave us in this darkness, but you have called us out. You have called us to turn our backs on sin and rebellion. We acknowledge our part in the suffering of this world. We are sorry for disbelieving, disrespecting, disobeying you. And so we pray together, Father, forgive us. Rewrite our end and lead us into eternal life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.